This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I uh, was asked by uh, Professor Ramachandran to talk about a concept I developed about 25 years ago called mimetic culture, and I ended up talking about skill, and you might wonder why. Well, I was looking for the master adaptation, that is, the, the adaptation early in human evolution that was the platform on which our later cognitive evolution could have been built. So I'm looking for um, what Dan Dennett would call the, the evolutionary trick that allowed us to build the human world. And um, that uh, trick, I would argue, has had a lot to do with the refinement of skill. Um, skill is uh, really, refined skill is the ability to install new subsystems, new architectures in the, in the mind. So it's a very fundamental thing. Uh, Colin Redford was talking about the master tool, the, the, the stone tools from which you could make other tools like spears and cut hides and so on. Well, there has to be a mind tool, there has to be a system in the mind from which you can construct all the other elements of the human world. And uh, um, I'm going to just run some images of skills, of, of refined skills in human culture by you. And I want you to think about the core adaptation that may be at the, so, at the center of this and what may be the driving forces behind it. So I'll just show you a series of images. Uh, you can see that uh, the images uh, get more complex as I go along because skills are arranged in hierarchies. And the hierarchies are not only internal. For example, when you, when you learn the piano, you learn uh, a whole series of hierarchical skills. You're driving the car. You learn how, what, how much pressure to put on the accelerator, how to brake, how to look in the mirror, how to back up, how to park. You put all this together in higher and higher uh, level uh, integrated uh, performances, and they become automated and buried in the system. But you also embed skill in hierarchies in society, in what I would call a distributed cognitive system, so that these skills, all of, all of the skills, many skills involved in these images, are coordinated uh, on a very high level in a distributed system. And as human society gets more complicated, the skills become embedded in larger and larger systems uh, that uh, uh, harness and embed individual skills in a larger structure, that is a collective structure. And my argument for 20 years has been that our evolutionary innovation was the distributed cognitive systems of culture that, that have no equivalent in any other species. Sometimes skill is focused just on the body. That is to say, uh, especially in the modern world, we have isolated uh, uh, skills that focus on particular combinations, but even these are hierarchical. You have to master any of these skills uh, in a series of movements that take a great deal of time. Now, these are all procedural in the, in the sense that Terry was uh, reviewing. Procedural memory, I don't like that term, but I, it, is a, it is one we have to live with. That takes great repetition and continuous practice to refine. And at the end of the day, you end up with skills of this complexity, of enormous complexity, that uh, are the, in the high arts and in the modern forms of uh, athletics, which require extraordinary talent, that is an extraordinary nervous system, in addition to extraordinary amounts of preparation. 
Now, what do you draw from all this? You've looked at all these things. What are, what are the common elements? Well, one of the things that struck me when I was putting these images together was the number of times in those images, I would say over 90% involve material culture. Over 90% of those skills involve mastering a relationship with a manufactured, modified piece of the environment that has been somehow transformed by human activity. And the other element is that it requires a basic adaptation in the brain. So there are two things interacting. Some adaptation, but I would call a master adaptation in the brain, which allows us to restructure our minds and acquire completely new cognitive architectures, driven by the obvious adaptive advantages of harnessing the environment uh, and uh, manufacturing uh, devices that extend our powers. Now, it's interesting that the earliest incidents in archaeology of of tools and of evidence for refined skill is in material culture. And if you look at the dating of some of these images, the earliest stone tools that have been documented are approximately two and a half million years old. There's some evidence uh, of butchering of animals even three and a half million years ago, but they haven't yet found any of those tools. Around 1,800,000 and afterwards, you have the more complex tools of the Acheulean culture, which are master tools, that is to say, the cutters can be used to, to prepare other things out of soft material, and the uh, hand axes are great crushers for, uh, for a variety of purposes. So these are tools that make tools that make the species much more powerful. It took a very long time, almost two million years, a year, uh, to get to the point of the expansion of, of that toolkit in the Upper Paleolithic, um, as Colin says, it doesn't look all that impressive, but in fact, don't forget, these are the sharpest, hardest objects. They can be used for all sorts of purposes, and they have served us very well historically. Now, what is this master adaptation I was talking about? I've argued that it is a process called mimesis, and mimesis is basically reenactment of a perceived event. The, the standard routine is, is what you call review and rehearse. So you plan you execute, you review in imagination until you approximate an ideal of performance. And you do this over and over again, and children do this from a very young age. What's interesting, from a comparative point of view, is that no other species does this. For example, um, various primates throw projectiles at one another when they have battles, but you'll never see a primate standing in the forest all day <laughs> practicing, approximating an ideal of performance. The same is true of manufacturing tools. Uh, manufacturing tool is a very complex operation, and quite independently of the scenarios that involve selecting materials and so on, there is this imaginative review. So this is new. This is evolutionarily new. And I would argue the basis of uh, human nonverbal culture, as well as a platform on which uh, later adaptations, such as the one that Terry was talking about, where you link episodic to procedural memory. The first thing was a massive, massive change in the nature of procedural memory and the feed, feedback systems that go into it. To go, I can't go into this in great detail, but basically I've given an example here of a dancer because it's a very informative. Mimesis is supramodal and it's metacognitive. And those are two terms that I'll break down a bit. Um, supramodal means above modality. So when, when an animal or a human interprets an event, the event is likely to have aspects that are visual, auditory, 
vibratory, body sense, and so on. And those things are not necessarily neatly correlated, and yet any mammal can effortlessly piece together all the bits and pieces that constitute the experience of a dogfight, for example. Um, and they'll remember it very accurately. That is event perception. And the back part of the brain is largely devoted to doing that. Uh, we still don't really understand how that integration is achieved, but I assure you uh, there are many Nobel, Nobel Prizes in the future for those who can figure that out. But what they can't do is transform that event perception into an output that somehow resembles the event perception. We have isolated output systems for various systems. I have simply listed parts of the body, but in fact, they tend to be organized in things like auditory vocal systems, eye-hand coordination systems, locomotor systems, and so on. The point is, the dancer, a skilled dancer, can map any of those sources of rhythm, which is an abstract pattern in time, onto any of those output systems. So reenactment, mimetic reenactment, sits at the very top of the primate cognitive hierarchy and is logically and necessarily the first adaptation that humans had to go through before such fancy things as high-speed language could come along. The other thing about it, what's interesting, is that, of course, this is, this is play-acting. This is pretend play. Rehearsing a skill is a fantasized action, and we can implement it. So it means that early on, humans became actors in a theater of culture. We are dramatic. We're, we're drama queens and drama kings, basically. Um, we perceive complex social scenarios, and we can imagine them and act them out. It's a very remarkable skill. I think that is quite independent of language. So I've, I've proposed on the basis of this uh, notion the idea that um, the first culture of humans for several million years, based on fairly hard evidence from archaeology and uh, a, a sense of re re reverse engineering from cognitive uh, science, uh, that this adaptation must have sustained us for a very long period of time. It has interesting properties because in, in, by acquiring such a, a whole body mimetic capacity, it has effects on the emotive system, the skill system, the, and the pantomime system, basically uh, social custom and ritual of the entire society. And this would logically and inevitably have led to some form of non-linguistic gesture possibly what we would call proto-words, uh, although I'm not sure that's uh, meaningful. Now, one of the byproducts of this is a reciprocal control of attention because a skill-oriented society in which, anchored in material culture, a whole set of subroutines evolve over a very long period of time is necessarily one uh, where people are paying attention to one another and inter interacting. Um, what is very interesting about this uh, is that it renders the actions of the group coherent. So you can have group pantomime, group displays of, of conventionalized group displays of grief, group displays of celebration, group displays of, uh, of aggression, as in war cries, and so on. And these have not changed over the centuries. That picture was taken in New Orleans a couple of years ago. Basically, you read the same things in that crowd as you would read uh, in, in, in presumably a pre-linguistic group. Now, what does this mean? Well. Our, our conventional taxonomy places up in us with the anthropoidae on the basis mostly of anatomy and, and genetics, at least what we now know of genetics, which is probably uh, in the cognitive realm not very much. And what's interesting is that 
in classifying other species, we usually list their armamentarium of tools that, with which they deal with the world. So fangs, claws, uh, horns, uh, stingers are, are tools with which animals face the world and, and cope. When we think of humans, we notice two things. First of all, the presence of material culture as a, as a very important thing. And the second thing is the collectivity, the interconnection between individuals that leads to organization. And that carried to, into the modern realm has exploded into uh, this incredible material environment. I'm, I'm calling it a cognitive ecology now because it's an ecology that we've been evolving for a long time but that has suddenly exploded with exponential speed. Um, which points to the true uniqueness of human cognition and the thing that I want, want to emphasize here. When we started this process two million or more years ago, it, it, it looked probably rather innocent in the sense that we were primates that could install new architectures and modify the physical environment. But if you think of those images of, that, of the wolf and the, and the cat and so on, in the process of acquiring new tools, especially tools that could make tools, we were introducing a, a radical change in our interaction with the world. Because, of course, imagine a wolf that could manufacture better fangs, uh, better claws, and so on. And that's effectively what we were, what we were doing. We did this, and there's evidence early on, for cognitive communities. And the term I use is mind-sharing cultures. Now, the reason I've used that word is that our cultures are unique in the biosphere in that they are organized in, in terms of cooperative groups around circles of trust, and the most intimate ones being circles of love. These are cognitive judgments. They reduce... Uh, uncertainty and increase the predictability of interactions in special, special groups, but they're based on the sharing, usually, of some aspect of mind. And that includes the sharing of the nonverbal or physical aspect of the world that is expressed mimetically. These circles regulate empathic, emotional, and cognitive attunement among their members. It's what I call cognitive governance. Uh, you can't be a part of such a system, such a cognitive system, unless you've passed the test, as it were, of intimacy. And the final conclusion and the statement I, I've, I've made many times is that the human brain co-evolved with this collective process and with material culture for a very long time and cannot realize its design potential outside the distributed systems of culture. In other words, we have a brain that has evolved not in a modular sense of uh, being specialist, ready to face the world the way a wolf or a lion is. We have a brain that's necessarily almost anticipating being plugged into a distributed system. It's oriented to download and assimilate whatever that system happens to be, and therefore it has to be highly flexible. But the starting point, the master adaptation that led to all of this was mimesis, and the ability to install new skills. Thank you very much. It's really an honor to be here, um, especially among such uh, incredible intellectuals that um, I can share the stage with. My job, as I see it, is to give you a preview, in many ways, of some of these differences and a few hints as to how I think about them. 
Uh, although I'm a neuroscientist by training, I'll talk very little about brains today. I want to just sort of give you uh, a broad sense of how I, I like to think about human uniqueness uh, in a, the sense of the problem of what a symbol is. Uh, this is a complicated problem because, in fact, we don't really have one definition of what a symbol is. And what I want to do is to try to take it apart a little bit and to talk a little bit about uh, how I think um, our unique abilities to deal with this way of referring to things uh, has changed us uh, fundamentally in comparison to other species. And I want to put it in context with a fairly simple and mundane example um, to show you that what we think about as symbols are really part of a much larger picture uh, in which they are probably the most developed and most subtly complex form of communication, of sign, so to speak. And that's using this example of a signet ring. Uh, that we use, for example, to close an envelope and identify the person who did it. There is an iconic aspect that is a part that we recognize by its likeness to something else. And that likeness becomes important at many, many stages. First of all, just simply the whole sign vehicle itself, that is the wax impression, uh, is a likeness that we've seen others like it. Uh, but there's, of course, a more fu fundamental likeness between the ring impression and the wax that was impressed by it. But we know something more about it. We know that somebody in particular did it uh, with a particular ring. And we know this because he had to be or she had to be physically connected to that mark. That's an indexical relationship. We know that this indicates, we say, that this person was there, was involved with sealing this, this note as a signature on a document uh, is an indication that you were physically present and part of it. It indicates it in the way that a thermostat indicates temperature. Um, however, uh, to understand the bigger message here, we need something more than just knowing about the physical features here. And what we need to know is that a person that has a ring like this is probably a special person, that the ring itself is carrying some social cultural information. Uh, what's interesting is that if you didn't know about the first two forms, uh, you couldn't really say much about this. Even if you knew cultural features like uh, kings or princes have special rings, uh, if you didn't really understand this connectivity, the iconic and indexical base, you wouldn't really understand the symbols. The symbol is, in a sense, separate from the physical sign vehicle. We often make the mistake, however, of saying, well, that means it's just arbitrary. What I'm trying to show you here is that it's not, in fact, just arbitrary. You have to know a lot about the sign vehicle, a lot about what's gone on before this. You need to know the iconic and indexical features. In talking about the origins of language, uh, I focus on this in part because we tend to think about language divorced from other forms of communication, divorced from uh, our laughter and sobbing, divorced from our facial expressions, and so on. Uh, the point is that we have also taken the word symbol and given it interesting and not so useful second meanings, so that we often talk about typographical characters as symbols. What I want to do is to pull two things apart. The character itself, uh, like these letters on this page, are symbols in the sense that they were designed to communicate symbolically. But very quickly, if you notice this little, what's called an emoticon these days, in the first line of this, the smiley face. Uh, is made up of, quote, typographical symbols, but it doesn't refer to anything symbolically. It refers by virtue of its likeness. 
It's embedded in a whole symbolic uh, complex, but its reference is iconic. And one of the important things is to keep the referential piece separate from the vehicle. And one of the things that symbolic communication has done has allowed us to use other modes of communicating, other kinds of signs, uh, to communicate in a way in which the sign vehicle itself doesn't have to carry much, doesn't have to do a lot of the work. So being conventional or being invented or being even created to be symbolic, to use to be used for symbolic communication, like words uh, on this page are or coming out of my mouth, doesn't necessarily mean that they refer symbolically. I want to keep those apart because I think what's different about us is that we do symbolic reference uh, better and much more efficiently, much more rapidly than other species. Uh, Here's a quick cartoon that, that I hope gives you a sense of this. On uh, the left, uh, there's this sort of network. Um, You can think about this as like a dictionary. A dictionary is a word that's mapped to other words, and each of those other words are mapped to other words. Uh, There are more complicated ways to talk about this kind of a network in terms of what we might call a lexical uh, system uh, in our brains. But basically, words have this ability to refer to other words in interesting ways. Uh, But they do so in somewhat of an isolation from the rest of the world. Uh, And one of the real problems we have, and it's been argued for generations, is how do symbols get ground to things in the world? How do they get found out in terms of how they refer to something else? And the issue there is that we have to use complicated combinations of symbols to do this. Uh, And we have to either tell people about it, or we have to have things in language that accomplish this. So to give you a sense of what I mean by this, Um, uh, we need in language to have things that do iconic and indexical work. For example, um, the surface of this table is smooth, but the word smooth by itself doesn't give you any specific reference. But I could also simply do this and utter the word smooth, and you know I'm now referring to that particular surface. Uh, In effect, that's an index. It indicates something. And symbols, because they are, in a sense, just in relation to each other, need also to be indexed. They need to be linked to things in the world. Um, I won't go into the details of this, but I think this is a crucial piece of story that tells us that, in fact, um, symbols are not just arbitrary marks that can be shuffled around. There's not just any possible way to do it. They need to be embedded in a much more complex system. One of the things I think is interesting about referring to things this way is that it changes the way our memories work. And I think one of the more interesting things about us is our memories, Uh, what it means to, in effect, uh, remember something, bring something up. Um, Typically, psychologists like to divide the memory systems, neuropsychologists, into what we sometimes call procedural and episodic memory. Procedural memory is the kind of skill learning memory. Episodic memory is the kind of memory that you use to find out what you had for breakfast yesterday, for example, a particular episode. The difference is that in a procedure, you can use it again and again. You repeat. To remember something well, you repeat something again and again. You do it again and again. You get on your bicycle again and again. But an episode only occurs once. And the way you have to remember that is by its relations to other things. And in fact, there have been centuries of mnemonic devices where people trying to remember details embed them in sort of episodes. The point I want to make about language and symbolic communication is that the words that we learn 
uh, and the syntax that we learn to put those words together um, are procedural. Um, they're habits of skills that we have, and we develop them over many, many, many years. They're procedural memories, in a sense, that you don't have to think about any more than I have to think about what foot to put on my bicycle first uh, when I get up. Um, uh, however, the meanings of those words uh, and how they refer to things in the world are much more associated with episodes, things that have gone on, individual events. Basically, what language has done is it's allowed these two memory systems to work together. We use words and syntax to sample the episodes in our past. We can use those episodes then to lead to new storylines. In effect, the way I like to think about it is that symbols have given us narrative. Um, until we had a way to represent in this way, we were not having, in a sense, a narrative of our life to rely upon. We human beings live every moment in a kind of self-narrative. And what I want to suggest is this is something unique. It's not language per se, but language has certainly become the crucial basis for this. Um, we remember things differently. Um, I don't think of myself here and now with an audience in front of me. I think of myself um, at some point in a story, you might say. That, I think, is a unique feature that symbols have provided. Um, Another thing, and this is a, the cover of a book uh, that was published, not surprisingly, in Berkeley called Why Cats Paints. Um, uh, my favorite part, by the way, is uh, why cats sculpt toward the end of it. They always sculpt in furniture. You probably know this. Um, um, uh, what I want to get at here is I want to just sort of broaden this story out because many of the speakers after me are also going to talk about some of these issues. Um, it's not just... Uh, thinking and symbolic processes that have been changed by this process. And I think one of the important things to think about is why we find things like painting interesting, why we find manipulation of color interesting, or forms, and so on. I want to give you a sense of this using a couple of um, links to this icon index symbol kind of logic, uh, just, just to sort of tantalize you a little bit. Icons, of course, are pictures. They bring to mind similar things. So the picture of the woman and her baby brings to mind a particular relationship, maybe some specific events in your past, a child playing with toys, or a marionette here. Each of these doesn't, in a sense, tell you anything new, so to speak. It might be the first time you've seen this picture, but it brings to mind other things. But what about this picture? Um, this is the cover of a New Yorker magazine. Looking closely at it, you realize it's got all these same parts, but they're juxtaposed in weird ways. And as a result, their discontinuities, in effect, point to each other. They indicate each other. They indicate something is wrong. And as you look at this, um, I want you to think you began to laugh right at the beginning because in many ways, we look right through these. We look through it not to see a puppet and a baby and a mother. Um, we see it's commenting about something. What is it about? That's what we're interested in. We're interested in this sort of general symbolic background. Uh, but it's using these icons and indices in juxtaposition to get us there. We find this very common, and I, I like to use artistic examples. Uh, the one on the left, of course, is a comment about something. It's not, the, it's not 
a city. It's not a ruin. Uh, it's a comment about something. We don't see it for what it is. We see it um, for something that's behind it, so to speak, that it points us to. As most political cartoons, of course, do this very commonly, use odd juxtapositions that themselves carry meaning, sometimes cultural meaning, But it's the configuration, the picture, and how the contradictions or the symbols within them, how they point to each other and so on, that lead us to a meaning that's behind it. I want to use a concept that's been developed by people both here uh, and elsewhere, a concept called conceptual blending, to talk a little bit about how using symbols has changed this way of thinking. Now, uh, there's other ways to do it, but here's the the depiction I want you to take away. The bottom part of this is about conceptual blends. The two clouds towards the bottom are meant to represent uh, basically two symbolic ideas, perhaps uh, pictures, uh, perhaps words, perhaps phrases, uh, perhaps events. What's going on here in a conceptual blend is that you basically see their relationships to each other. You link their components to each other in various ways. Uh, And the picture down below shows that, in a sense, you get a blended image as a result. Lots of ways that we use to think about the past, what could have been, what might have been. um, Things that don't exist oftentimes can be thought about in these sort of blending terms. But what I want to point out is that oftentimes symbols, like the ones I just showed you, various pictures, come with an emotional tone as well. There is some attachment we have to mothers and to babies, for example, and to puppets, and to what puppetry might mean indirectly. Um, Each of them carries an emotional feature as well. So when you blend symbols, when you blend images, when they juxtapose in various ways, you are also incidentally blending emotional states. Um, Not in the same sense that you would as when you encounter a direct interaction with someone that drives up an emotion. It's, It's a much weaker version of it, but it's a juxtaposition. And the way I like to look at it in terms of how the brain is working, and I won't go into any detail about this, but that in fact we have very different parts of our brain that are involved in the positive, generating positive emotions and negative emotions. And what that means is that if a particular juxtaposition um, uh, allows us uh, to bring together these emotions, what we've got in effect is what I would call an emergent emotion, an emotion that normally we wouldn't have. Um, but can be brought together in unusual ways. And I like to think that, in effect, that a joke does this sort of thing. Uh, What does a joke do? It brings together juxtaposing things that are mutually exclusive. And as you follow the punchline, is that um, you're led down a sort of garden path and suddenly something changes. Um, That other meaning was possibly there, but hidden, as the one up on the far right, the little green sort of empty cloud up there. Uh, But when the punchline is given, or when you figure out what it means, suddenly the one meaning is tossed out and the other meaning comes in. That is, one emotion, as I show it down here, in a sense has to be suddenly shut off. One tension has to be suddenly shut off. The other one comes to life. This is a very sudden event, and it's a very intense event. Um, Similarly, when we have an aesthetic experience, oftentimes it's because of a juxtaposition as well. Um, And uh, that juxtaposition is one that maybe doesn't ever resolve. So what I want to suggest here is that these capabilities didn't just change our cognition, didn't just give us language and logic and science. They actually changed some very deep things about us. 
Um, they give us um, what I think is a unique emotional world to live in, um, a unique set of experiences, and what's quite surprising is that these are experiences that we love, that we seek out. This kind of juxtaposition, this kind of use of symbols to manipulate our experience is, I think, one of the hallmarks of being human. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to talk about the brain and what some of the functions that our brains are especially good at. Uh, but before I do that, let me acknowledge some collaborators. Uh, Liz Seckel, who's here in the audience, grad students, postdocs, yours truly. Some of you may have guessed that this slide was supplied to me by Liz Seckel about an hour ago. <laughs> now, there are many ways of studying them, but it's made up of neurons uh, Many ways of studying the brain. One way is single unit neurophysiology. You put an electrode in the brain, eavesdrop on the activity of individual nerve cells, find out what's the optimum stimulus in the external world that can optimally activate the cell, and study the circuitry by doing that. Another technique is brain imaging, sort of looking at what part of the brain lights up when you perform a particular action, which makes the media sort of voyeuristic phrenology. Third approach, the one we use extensively, is the lesion approach. When the small part of the brain is damaged, what you often get is a highly selective loss of a specific function rather than an across-the-board blunting of your mind or reduction of all your cognitive capacities. That gives you some confidence in asserting that that region of the brain is involved in mediating that function. So I'll give you an example. We've talked about various functions of the human brain, which we may be especially good at. Anyway, there's a long list. You heard about all the abilities. But one, one ability that I'm fond of and we heard about a little bit from Dan Dennett was humor and laughter. And I'll tell you about a patient I saw in Velour in India over 25 years ago. This patient had pain in symbolia, that is some lesion in his pain pathways in the brain, the thalamus, or somewhere, we don't know. And I would poke him with a needle as part of a routine neurological exam. And every time I poked him with a needle, he would start giggling uncontrollably. So I poke him and he said, ha, 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 poke him, each time I poke him, he'd start laughing uncontrollably. I asked him, does it feel funny? He said, yes, yes, it's painful, but it also feels incredibly funny, instead of feeling aversive, right? So I started thinking about this. Why would a human being laugh at the face of pain? It's the ultimate paradox. Then I started asking, why does anybody laugh for anything? An ethologist watching all of you guys here would notice that every now and then you pause what you're doing, shake your head and say, hey, 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 and make this funny stereotype vocalization. The question is, why do we all do this? It's undoubtedly a universal trait, human trait, because every culture, every society, every civilization, every tribe, every country has some form of laughter or humor, except Germans. <laughs> um, but anyway, not, notwithstanding that point, you assume it's hardwired into the human brain. And the question is, why is it that? This, this is raised by Dan Dennett and argued eloquently. Uh, for evolutionary reasons that humor might have emerged. I have a slightly different take on it, very closely related to Dennett's. If you look at all laughter and humor, it has the following structure. You take a person, let's take slapstick, for example. You take a person along a garden path of expectation, building up a story. At the very end, you introduce a twist that entails a complete reinterpretation of all the preceding facts, what we call the punchline. Right? But that's not enough. The twist has to be inconsequential. For example, if you have a scientific 
theory being built up by a scientist over his lifetime. And you come and disprove it suddenly. Sudden twist entailing a complete reason. He's not going to find it funny. <laughs> I, I've tried it many times. It doesn't work. <laughs> so, it has to be... To give you an example from slapstick comedy, this portly gentleman is walking along the street, slips on a banana peel and falls down. His head hits the pavement and blood starts spilling out. You don't start laughing. You go call the ambulance, unless you're really perverse. But if he, if he gets up, looks around him, wipes off the banana, you might start laughing. That's the basis of slapstick comedy. What's the key difference between the two? In both cases, there's an expectation set up. And this portly gentleman is going to reach his destination. In both cases, the guy falls down, slips on a banana peel. In the first case, he really hurts himself. You sort of call for help. You call the ambulance. You shout. You're going to reach out, reach out to help him, run towards him. In the second case, you know that the inconsequence is wiping off the banana from his head. So you start making this vocalization to announce to your peer, your group, that this, there's no, this is a false alarm. In other words, laughter is nature's false alarm signal. This is the idea that I proposed in the book. Now, how do I know it's done? Let's go back to this patient. What's gone wrong in this patient? When we did a CT, we found the problem was in the insula, in both sides of the brain, insular cortex. The insular cortex is involved in receiving pain signals and, and responsible for the sensation of pain as opposed to the aversive quality of pain. From there, the message gets sent eventually to have to relay to the anterior cingular, which is involved in the aversive quality, the, the, pain, the agony of pain is experienced in the vicinity of the anterior cingular. So in this chap, the insula itself may have been preserved, but the wire that goes from the insula to the anterior cingular might have been damaged, to put it crudely. It's just a conjecture. So what happens is this, the, pain, the guy gets his information. One part of the brain gets the information that something is painful and aversive. But the very next second, timing is very important, as Dennett pointed out, very next second, in very next in, in few milliseconds, the anterior cingulate says, no, but there's nothing here. So there's an expectation of something dangerous being built up and a deflation of expectation, saying, don't worry, it's harmless, ha, 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 laugh. Inform your peers who share your genes, don't waste your resources, don't run to my aid, everything is fine. Right? This explains tickling too, by the way. Right? So this menacing adult approaches the child, his hands like this. And then he comes and then deflates it, saying, kuch, 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 kuch. Right? So there's an expectation of something terrible going to happen, there's a deflation. So you could say tickling is a form of rehearsal for adult humor. Then, of course, all kinds of, it gets embellished by society and you get all kinds of other variants in humor, the pun, the different types of humor that Dennett listed. This is an example of lesionology giving you insight into evolution of an ability that we think is largely human. Raises an interesting question about things like slapstick. Would slapstick be funny? Maybe Nick Humphrey knows the answer. So would slapstick be funny to a chimp? You can easily, with modern video technology, create an impression of a chimp walking, slipping on a banana peel, portly chimp, alpha male, slipping on the banana peel, falling down, and getting up. Would this generate laughing in a chimp? Anybody here know the answer? You can take it up during discussion. <laughs> okay. Now I'm going to tell you about something quite different, an insight that came from, uh, from Phantom Limbs. When I'm studying phantom limbs. Uh, this comes from Rizzolatti's work on mirror neurons. Rizzolatti, and everybody here knows about mirror neurons, but for the benefit of the few who don't, I'll just recap very briefly. In the front of the brain, premotor cortex and motor cortex, there are cells which are which you call motor, motor neurons and premotor, premotor neurons. Motor command neurons in the premotor cortex send messages down the cortex to the motor cortex, orchestrating a sequence of muscle twitches going down the brainstem, down to the spinal cord, and your muscles then reach out and grab a pen or push an object 
or pull a lever or take a pin, grab a pin and put it in the mouth. These are garden variety, standard motor command neurons discovered by Vernon Mountcastle and his colleagues several decades ago. But about 10, 15 years ago, Giacomo Rizzolari found that a subset of these neurons, subset of these so-called motor command neurons, will fire not only when I reach and grab a pen, but when I watch Ajit reach out and grab a pen. So these are originally dubbed monkey see, monkey do neuron. So the neuron is saying, in effect, conveying information to higher centers in the brain, hey, the same neuron is firing as are firing, as would fire if you reach out and grab a pen. When Ajit is, so Ajit is about to reach out and grab the pen. It's a mind-reading neuron. It's an intentionality neuron. It's a theory of mind neuron. Right? So this neuron, these neurons, I claimed, and various others, other people have suggested this, involved, might be involved in mimesis and imitation, hence the link with Merv Donald's theory of human, human evolution and human nature. Because if you think about it, um, well, before I go there, that, that's the motor, motor mirror neuron. There are also sensory mirror neurons. If you go to the S2, secondary somatosensory cortex, majority, there's a complete map of the body surface and the surface of the brain. In S1, and then another map in S2, other maps as well. But let's take the map in S2. Right? In the map in S2, there are some cells, maybe about 5 to 10%. Most of them, there's a complete map of the body that are standard sensory neurons in the brain. But a subset of them will fire. Supposing I, somebody touches my thumb, neuron in my S2 fires in the homunculus. That same neuron will fire when somebody touches Rusty's thumb and I'm merely watching. So again, the neuron is saying, empathize with Rusty. He's being touched and he's feeling the same thing as you would feel if you were being touched. So the, the mirror neuron system is doing a virtual reality simulation of what's going on in the other person's brain. Okay, what's the relevance to psychology? First of all, let's take the sensory neurons. The question then arises, if the sensory neuron in my brain, the same thing you find in the anterior cingulate, by the way, there are mirror neurons with pain in the anterior cingulate. Right? So they respond to my pain, they also respond to somebody poking a jeep. And I almost say, ouch, and draw my hand, but I don't. I empathize with this pain. The question arises, if these neurons, pain neurons in my anterior cingulate, or touch neurons in my S2, fire when I merely watch somebody, then why don't I feel it? If Rusty is being touched, I know he's being touched, I sort of kind of empathize with it. I don't feel, if somebody pokes Rusty with a needle, I don't say, ouch, and pull my hand out. If the same neurons are firing, why don't I do that? One answer, one answer might be that I have regular skin receptors sending a veto or null signal back to the mirror neuron system, partially vetoing the output, saying, look, buddy, empathize with the Rusty, but don't pull your hand away, it would be stupid. You're not in pain, he is in pain. Right? So the prediction from this is if you remove the arm, if you remove, then I should feel Rusty's pain. Right? And uh, 200 years that phantom limbs were known, nobody had tested this. So we had two patients, and the patient merely looking at me, the patient with the phantom right arm, looking at me stroking my right arm, pinching my right arm. He felt it in his phantom hand, merely looking at me stroking my intact hand. So it's a phantom rub, a phantom touch, phantom massage. This chap went home and phoned me the next day, and he said he had this in, in, um, phantom cramps in his phantom hand, he simply asked his wife to massage her own hand while he watched. And that relieved the pain instantly. So it's a phantom massage relieving a phantom pain. We haven't tested this in controlled clinical trials, unlike, unlike a mirror procedure, not in control, but it's just a possible therapeutic use for it. But there's nothing to do with human nature and uniqueness. So let's go there. Well, there are many, many pe- people who have different favorites of what's characteristic of the Great Leap Forward. It's happened from 75,000 to 150,000 years ago. 
tool use, fire, shelter, language, theory of mind. Uh, in other words, and, and more recently, culture and civilization in general. So what do mirror neurons have to do with this? Well, take a polar bear. A polar bear to evolve a fur coat must have taken 100,000, 200,000 years or more to, to adapt to cold. A human child in a hominid watching its mother with the rich, richly connected mirror neurons in a single trial or a couple of trials watching a mother hunt and skin a polar bear will do it. In, in other words, evolution suddenly became Lamarckian instead of Darwinian. That's the birth of culture and civilization, that one magic step. Now you could say, well, monkeys, have, monkeys don't have civilization. So one isn't saying that mirror neurons themselves are responsible, but something more sophisticated, more sophisticated mirror neuron system in humans. And again, it's not one group of cells, it's a distributed system. But functionally, it is encapsulated. Mirror neuron systems have a specific function. Just as the immune system is distributed all over the body, but it's a specific f- f- system. It's got specific functions. So one mustn't confuse the anatomical distributed nature of a system and its functional specialization. So, so that explains culture and civilization. And I'm going to talk about a different phenomenon, <laughs> synesthesia. I've talked about the flexibility or malleability of the brain, how you can remove a person's arm and you feel somebody else's sensation. So look at the implications of this. If, if I remove my arm, I start feeling Ajit's sensations. The barrier between me and him is just skin deep. It sounds like Eastern philosophy and mumbo-jumbo. But it's true. So I call these neurons Gandhi neurons. Because <laughs> they're dissolving the barrier between one mind and another mind in terms of qualia, separation of his qualia from mine. I start experiencing his qualia. So now synesthesia is an odd phenomenon uh, that until recently was not widely known, until about 10 years ago. But Darwin was into, Darwin's first cousin, Francis Galton, was interested in it. And he pointed out that certain individuals in the population, about he, he thought one in, one in a thousand, one in a ten thousand, people have said one in a thousand. We find that synesthesia is very common. One in 30 people have synesthesia. So there may be a few synesthetes here who have not come out. Okay. Very common. It refers to the fact some people who are otherwise completely normal experience, when they listen to sounds, they experience colors. So F sharp may be blue, C sharp may be green so on and so forth. And some of them, when they see letters of the alphabet or numbers especially, and they see numerals, five is red, six is blue, seven is green, eight is chartreuse, nine is indigo, so on and so forth. Each number has a specific color, it's tinged with the color. And they say they literally see the color of the number, it's not something they imagine. So there have been many theories of this phenomenon. Galton pointed out it runs in families. Since then we have known also that it's eight times more common among artists, poets, and novelists, and other creative people. Why would it be more common? Interesting question. Um, so the first question is, is it real or is it just mad? And they claim this. So we did a simple... First of all, people have said it's due to drug abuse. People taking LSD, for example, experience anesthesia. But that doesn't explain it completely. It is more, much more common in Berkeley than here. <laughs> but that, that sort of raises the question of why some, some drugs enhance anesthesia. So what are the brain mechanisms? What are the broader... I'm going to have to rush through here. It runs in families more common in artists, poets, and novelists. So we did a simple test to show it's a real phenomenon. We designed this display. Five is red and two is green. How many of you can see the fives in a forest of twos? It's hard to do. Sort of the opposite, yeah. And the synesthete looks at it and he says, oh, I see an upside-down red triangle. And he does it much faster than us normals. 
So if he's, if he's just crazy, how come he's better at it? So this shows he literally sees the color, the quality of the color in those numbers, and this allows it to pop out. What's going on in the brain? We found that we did some brain imaging uh, with Jeff Boynton and found that the number area and the color area of the brain are adjacent to each other in the fusiform gyrus. So we suggested there may be some cross activation, some redundant wiring that has not been pruned away in early infancy. Ordinarily, there's a lot of redundancy of connections, as Rusty here knows, in the, in the, in the infant brain, in the fetal brain. These are pruned away by genes. If there's some mutation in the pruning gene. Adjacent modules are hyper-connected. So then if the number and color areas are close together, there's excess connections between them. So every time you activate a number node, a corresponding color is evoked. So you see synesthesia. So what's the big deal about this? You've shown what's going on in this brain. So who cares? Well, it turns, the answer comes from the fact that it's eight times more common among artists, poets, and novelists. The, if the gene is synesthesia gene, the pruning gene, the defective pruning gene is expressed selectively in the fusiform gyrus, then you get this quirky form of synesthesia, number color. It's expressed near the hearing centers is tone color. What is the same thing is expressed throughout the brain? You're going to get hyperconnectivity throughout the brain. Right? And we think of metaphor as linking seemingly unrelated ideas and creativity as seemingly unrelated ideas. Then you see how an increased connectivity in the brain is going to create an increased propensity to link seemingly unrelated ideas, the basis of creativity and metaphor. Hence, the hidden agenda of the gene, like the sickle, sickle cell anemia gene, hence the eight times higher proportion of synesthesia gene among artists, poets, and novelists. So that's the rationale for why one in 30 people has this, apparently. Last thing I want to say is, I do want to show you this fun thing, by the way. Uh, this, this, this is for fun. Nick Humphrey would like this because he studied blind sight. Um, can anybody read this? How many of you can read it? About five of you. The rest of you can't read it. Synesthetes read it immediately. They say, oh, I see some colors. Oh, there's red and there's blue and there's green and yellow, but why am I seeing colors? There's no letters there. There's no numbers there. Why am I seeing colors? And then you show them. Squint your eyes. Can, you, can everybody read it now? Raise your hand. Raise your hand, please. Now, the astonishing thing is, synesthetes see this much better than us. Because what's happening is, those graphemes there are evoking cross-activation in the color area even before conscious recognition of the grapheme. And that's cueing them as to what the, number, what the letters are. Whereas you can only do it if I remove the sharp edges. Now, this got me thinking about, synesthesia got me thinking about Intersensory interaction in general. That's pathological interaction between the senses, synesthesia. What about inter interaction in general in all of us normal people? Not normal, non-synesthetes. Okay, here's a Martian alphabet. A is A, if I draw A, and B is B, C is C. Each shape has a particular sound. Now here's Martian alphabet. One of these is Kiki and the other is Booba. How many of you think this is Kiki and that is Booba? Raise your hands. There's only one person who's a mutant. <laughs> How many of you think this is Booba and that is Kiki? Raise your hand. Everybody else. You haven't learned Martian, you don't know anything about it. How come you did this? It's because the brain is saying the sudden inflection of that jagged shape chuk, 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 mimics the inflection of the sound, ki, ki. Mimics the inflection of the tongue on the palate, ki, pulling back, pi. Whereas the Booba sound, Booba, mimics the tongue undulating on the palate and the visual impression of the amoeboid shape, right? Now, this may sound like a silly little demonstration. It was actually created by Eins Werner, Gestalt psychologist. Not for this purpose, but he invented it. 
But it's very important because it's telling you about a process that we humans excel at called intrasensory abstraction. There's nothing in common between hair cells being excited sequentially and the shape there on the jagged shape, which is photons being emitted from the retina and hitting the retina in parallel. The pattern of neural activity in the visual cortex has nothing in common pattern of activity in the auditory cortex, sequential activation of hair cells. The only property they have in common is the abstract property of kikiness, jaggedness. And the brain is able to extract this and is doing it, I claim, in this inferior parietal lobule. The patient leaves the inferior parietal lobule at abysmal at buba kiki. They're at chance level. I've seen several patients in there. So this process of abstraction we excel at. And not coincidentally, perhaps, is this process of abstraction especially good in humans are especially good at it. And this structure became several times bigger in humans, and especially in the left hemisphere, than in lower primates. It's an accelerated development of the size of the left inferior parietal lobule in humans. So something interesting going on there, but reaching out and grabbing trees, combining motor signals with sensory signals for mirror neuron activation, combining visual, uh, motor, tactile, and everything else, abstract, conducting an abstraction, intermodal abstraction. And finally, if you destroy the left inferior parietal lobule, these patients also become terrible at metaphor. If you tell the guy, it is, all that glitters is not gold, what does that mean? Ajit, what does that mean? All that glitters is not gold. I know. It just means you don't go with surface appearances. So I asked this guy, what, all that glitters is not gold, what does that mean? He says, oh, well, it means that if it's shiny and yellow, it doesn't mean it's gold, it could be copper, or it could be an alloy. And the only way to find out is to go and get its specific gravity. He's not stupid, he knows about specific gravity, he knows everything, but he doesn't get it. Right? He doesn't get it. And then, uh, you know, by the way, I've tried this on normal people, and one out of 20 normal people don't get it. So there may be a metaphor of blindness in normal people. That's, that concludes it. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.